Me Too movement has led many people to share their experiences with sexual harassment and sexual assault. It's sparked conversations and controversy and maybe even cultural change. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about Me Too and its impact. I'm Charity Nebbe. Me Too has been everywhere, on the news, on social media, and in popular culture. Even teenagers who aren't interested in current events likely know something about Me Too. In this conversation, we're going to focus on the work of educators and parents to help prepare young people for safe and healthy relationships. We'll also talk about how to talk to kids about sexual harassment, sexual assault, and consent, and how preparing a child for a lifetime of healthy sexuality may begin long before puberty. With me today is Allison Oliver. She teaches human sexuality courses at the University of Iowa and has facilitated programming for children from kindergarten through middle school with the Our Whole Lives program, which is a value-based curriculum affiliated with the Unitarian Universalist Association. It is not taught in Iowa schools. Allison, hello. Yeah, glad for having this conversation. Well, and let's start with trying to put things in perspective a little bit. As a society, our understanding of when young people start to encounter situations where sexual education is useful, that has evolved over the years. I mean, there was a time not so long ago when it felt like you could wait until the teen years to have that conversation with your children about the birds and bees. But we really have changed as a culture, at least our understanding has changed as a culture. So from a perspective of an educator, from your experience, when do we need to start talking to kids about sexuality? Uh, Birth is when we need to start talking with kids about sexuality. And and, and some of that is, is really adapting our framework about what it means to be sexually active. And so from a developmentally appropriate perspective, um, I, I often ask my students, so um, how many of you, by a show, this is on the first night of class, how many of you by a show of hands have been born? And they all raised their hands. I said, okay, then by the definition of this class, you are sexually active. And that means that your sexuality has been growing and evolving and getting informed and infused with all different kinds of messages about who you are and how you act in the world and how you feel about your body. And these are, this is part of an educational experience that we have from the time we are born. And and I think we do a real disservice to um, our communities and our children when we when we have this mythology of this doesn't have to I don't have to have this conversation yet. I've got time. Um, and there are certain kinds of conversations that don't have to happen in the zero to five age range. And it doesn't mean that there are no conversations to be had because that education is already happening. So if you're not actually involved with it, then it just means that you're not a part of your child's sexuality education until much later. Well, I I can imagine people listening and feeling really uncomfortable because obviously children who are ages zero to five are not sexual creatures. They have not gone through puberty. They we worry about over-sexualizing children early in their mm-hmm. lives. So I can I can imagine people thinking, wait a minute, let's not let's not sexualize infants. Absolutely. So when you're talking about this kind of education for children who are preschool, what kinds of things are you talking about? Mm-hmm. 
So um, for anyone who has children, they know that they are incredibly tactile creatures. They are seeking out the world with all of their senses, um, getting a sense of boundaries, of their agency, of expressing their desires. Um, And these are all things that build the stepping stones for how we then later on interact um, with romantic and sexual partners. And so we, uh, from an attachment theory perspective, it is offering those those skills and parameters early because they set a stage for what it means a little bit later. So developing a kind of um, comfort and knowledge with their bodies and boundaries around that and different types of intimacy, um, different kinds of skills involved in forming relationships um, and expressing what we want and what how we might have to negotiate that um, when it's a good time. Um, all of the things that inform their decision making, um, how they cope with disappointment. And those are all skills that eventually go into the kind of relational skills that we would expect people to have in healthy romantic and sexual relationships. So active parenting that a lot of parents are doing anyway, but not necessarily thinking about it in this kind of context. Yes. And I'm asking parents to think about it in this context. Why is that important? Um, Because their children are getting messages about sex and sexuality. And for the most part, the messages that a lot of children get is that it's something not to be talked about. (laughs) that it's inappropriate to talk about it, and that there's something wrong with talking about it. And the and so the messages that we get early and often, especially related to our genitals, I offer the game of like, you know, in your zero to two age range, um, body parts games are really common with kids. And so it's like, where's your eyes? And you have the kids point to their eyes. Where's your ears? There's your ears. Where's your knees? There's your knees. Where's your penis? Is not part of this game, right? And... Um, and when they start developing the kind of language related to their um, to the body parts that have been deemed private, um, usually the message is like, don't talk about those. We don't say that in public. Um, it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate to touch them. It's inappropriate to talk about them. And without any other kind of messaging that's taking place. And so it's like this whole part of their body just vanishes. Um, and what research has found is that um, children who only receive messages about um, their privates being private and no other like, appro- like just uh, appropriate language for talking about their genitals. If they experience any kind of um, inappropriate sexual touch or sexual abuse, they are less likely to disclose that abuse to anyone else because the only messages they've received are this is a part of the body we're not supposed to talk about. And they, they, a lot of children can't get past that discomfort of all of that messaging that says, I'm not supposed to be talking about this. There's something bad or wrong that happened that I, that I let happen that I that I did, and um, and that for, just from a basic uh, prevention perspective, I think is incredibly important. That in contrast, children who have a healthy frame of reference for how to interact with their genitals and it's normalized and and they have some information and feel a sense of agency and autonomy and understanding of their bodies um, are much more likely to be able to voice those and express those. Um, if anything inappropriate happens. So you're talking about being able to name your body parts, not have names that obscure these body parts, yeah. for example. But give me give me some more concrete examples. I mean, how, how do you normalize this? Because you also, we, we all live in a culture, in a society, we don't want to encourage our children to do things that other people might consider to be inappropriate. Yes. And this is where I feel like it really needs to be community effort. And so when I talk to parents 
about using terminology like penis and vulva for um, for their kids' genitals. They're like, I don't want my kid to be that kid that is bringing it up. And and I said, okay, this is a community issue because we need all kids to be that kid. Um, and and it's it's language that. Uh, that we ha- that things like toilet humor and things like that are totally developmentally appropriate. Anyone who has young children watches that develop, and it doesn't necessarily ever really go away um, among adults either. And um, and so, but being able to um, talk about uh, like our bodies in terms of what feels good, how we take care of it, um, that there are different boundaries in different places at different times. We do that across lots of different. Um, conversations with our children about when is it appropriate to do this, when it's appropriate to do this, inside voices, outside voices. We're offering lots of kind of parameters for different kinds of behaviors, interactions, and speech. And this is just one other piece of that. Another area that I know that you've explored is giving children agency over their bodies. We think about little kids, you know, one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, hug grandma, hug aunt so-and-so, hug Mm -hmm. uncle so-and-so, give them a kiss. We instruct them. They don't have that kind of agency over their bodies. They don't necessarily get to make those decisions. And sometimes if they make a decision that makes us uncomfortable or hurts somebody's feelings, will push back. So Mm -hmm. that's something you think we need to take a good hard look at as well. Absolutely. I think that we need to model invitations as opposed to obligations um, related to different kinds of touching because those are built, those are building blocks that, that then get um, translated into other kinds of interpersonal relationships um, where there are different power dynamics and things that create opportunities for coercion. And so being able to offer agency and model um, if you're interested, you can give a hug to grandma. I think grandma would like a hug. Um, you don't have to, but you, if it feels good, you can. And to pair it with um, those, uh, as well as other kinds of invitations, like um, my with my, my child who just like fell down on the playground or on the playground with his bike yesterday, and I said, "Would some cuddling feel good right now?" And so those are invitations, and and it's with a sense of like, no is okay, yes is okay. And, and then being able to, um, you know, vary those as well as modeling for myself when, when cuddles are okay for me and times when I just need you to get off my lap because I got other things to do. Allison, before we take our next step here, I, I just want to ask you, you've talked with, you've worked with middle schoolers with this program since Me Too began, although not, not as it has gotten as big I think, and and visible as it is today. But I'm curious, did you have middle schoolers in, in your last year's program, did you have middle schoolers who were aware of the Me Too movement? Um, interestingly, not very many. So of the 15, 16 students who had in that particular cohort of students, I think I had two who were familiar with it when we had our conversations about about sexual assault and sexual abuse. Okay. So, and it was surprising that I was like, "How did you avoid this?" Um, but it, I mean, it shows how how siloed we can actually create um, our environment for our young people. So. Absolutely. So, in in bringing up these conversations with middle schoolers, did you introduce the subject? We did. I mean, we talk about um, current events. In our in our curriculum and and ways in which the media informs um, some some different messages about it and and so some some of the conversations that we had were about um, for those who did have some information about it was how how common it was um, 
based on all of the, the disclosures that were happening. And um, and some questions about just how do we support our friends who might um, disclose to each other since we know that people will generally disclose to peers more right. than other formal systems. So Well, and we will talk more about that in just a few minutes. Again, Alice and Oliver with me. But I want to bring somebody else into the conversation. Daniel Boskeljohn is a single father who lives in the Iowa City area. He has a 13-year-old child, Madeline, who identifies as queer and uses the pronouns they and them. Daniel, thank you so much for being here with me. Thanks for having me on. And you and Madeline are already navigating some difficult challenges for a 13-year-old. I think every 13-year-old has difficult challenges. It's difficult to be 13. Yes, absolutely. And already uh, Madeline is obviously thinking about identity and about sexuality. So I'm curious, from your perspective as a dad, how has the Me Too movement changed your thinking or opened your eyes? It was really revelatory for me. I had no idea how vastly cruel the world could be and how awful men could be because there's just not the people that I hang out with or talk to really. And it was really like when everything broke last year and I saw what had happened to my friends and how young people were and how pervasive it was. I just had no idea because I don't I don't go out a whole lot and I don't have those kinds of, you know, like I just, that wasn't part of my life at all. And women didn't talk to me like, oh, by the way, these things happened when I was 10 and 11 and 12. So I had no idea. And it really changed my approach to who I am and how I am and how I live and how I parent and how I teach. And it was a pretty big deal for me. It still is a pretty big deal for me. So as the father of a 12 or 13 year old hearing these stories, what did that make you, how did that change your idea of, of what Madeline might be facing or, or thinking about at this age? It did a lot. On the one hand, it was really clear that there was nothing I could actually do. Like there's very little, I can't protect her. I can't save her from whatever will happen. I can't save her from being catcalled or stared at or leered at or groped or whatever. I can't do that. I can't be with her all the time. And the most that I could do is continue to do what her mom and I had started doing, which is just to try to create a sense of autonomy within her so that she always knew who she was and where, what kind of life um, was most appropriate and where where she wanted to live or how. And so I, I can't I can't protect from outside forces coming in, but I can do as much as possible to create a sense of autonomy within the house so that whenever I have conversations with my kiddo, it's I try to be as absolutely open and neutral and respectful as possible. And that's, I think, where it starts and to have an open space where um, Madeline can share what happens on a day-to-day -day level and kind of go from there. Was Madeline aware of the things that you were seeing with the Me Too movement? I think so. I, I, I don't. It's one of those things like we're both on Facebook. And so I don't know how many of my posts Madeline actually reads because they tend to be rather long winded and tedious. And I think that kiddo gets kind of bored with that because Madeline parents lives are with a me little already. boring, right? Yeah. So I think there's part of that. But I mean, we did talk about it and I did, you know, ask if anything had happened. 
And it was shrug, kind of a shrugged away question. And you tried to reaffirm, like, you know, you can always talk to me. There's no reason to be ashamed of what other people do to you or toward you or at you. That's not your shame. That's not your guilt. And just it tried to open a door that would be appropriate for a 12-year-old or, if, you know, and just right. kind of keep building that relationship in an open direction. So in in understanding our world and, and having a new understanding of our world that, that you feel you got from the Me Too movement. I mean, as a parent, we all want to protect our children from bad things happening. Do you feel like there's anything you can do to protect Madeline? Um, the best thing that I have tried to do is really open discourse about the logic of misogyny. Uh, I'm reading Down Girl right now. Um, which is a fantastic book uh, that really explores the philosophy behind misogyny. I, in every class that I teach and the public venues that I have, it's been something that's incredibly important to bring up and stay aware of and try to speak about in ways that show what's going on, how things are happening, um, and just try to take people from where they are uh, people who grew up in my generation, people who are older, people who are younger, don't always understand how pervasive the logic of misogyny is. And things that happen with me, too, are a particularly horrifying, intimate, and personal particular manifestation of that logic. But it's a logic that destroys men. It destroys women. It destroys those in between um, on this gender spectrum. It destroys relationships. It's really awful. And the more that I can do to commit myself to helping people articulate what it is that's being seen or what it is that isn't seen and draw attention to it. Um, that's the only, I think, way to do something. Um, you know, as an educated white guy, there's not a ton that I can do, but that's a thing. Now, I also have a 13-year-old, and it's a, it's a difficult time, but it's also kind of a magical time where they are starting to explore their sexuality and think about the world and find their identity in new ways. Have you, as a dad, in thinking about this, have you worried about scaring Madeline at this time when, when things are kind of exciting? <laughs> I mean... I don't know, like as a single dad, like she's seen me date, she's seen me be in good relationships, she's seen me be in bad relationships, she's seen me be heartbroken, I've seen her be heartbroken. And so, I mean, the scariest thing is where somebody that you really love says, I can't be with you, and how to handle that graciously and how to understand what you can learn from it and what things you can't control. I mean, I've done a terrible job of showing her that in some ways, but in other ways, like I'm doing my best to be very articulate about how that kind of works and that's the scary thing the other kinds of fears again you can't control you can't control an outside act that imposes on you in a forceful way uh but i mean it's kind of an existentialist like i tend to go interior anyway so have you talked to other parent friends about this oh yeah yeah do you feel like it's something that that a lot of your parent friends are thinking about at this moment i i think so but again i come from a pretty like, I choose my friends very, very carefully. 
um, and I have a fairly select and curated group of individuals that I'm willing to spend time with, and so that's a pretty limited segment. Yeah. So, I mean, my parent friends are totally on board, and we have great conversations, but it's not indicative or representative of the larger right. culture. Right. It's a small sample. Yeah. <laughs> well, Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your experiences with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Daniel Boskeljohn is a single father of a 13-year-old in the Iowa City area. This hour we're talking about talking to our kids about sex, about safe and healthy relationships, and about what they may be hearing on the news or through social media spurred by the Me Too movement. We'd love to hear your thoughts and your questions. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. And... uh, we have with us Allison Oliver, who teaches human sexuality courses at the University of Iowa. She also teaches children uh, courses about sexuality, about other social, I guess, challenges <laughs> that, that we face as we grow through the Our Whole Lives program. And I also want to bring Carrie Trufunk into the conversation, Director of Operations and Special Projects with the Iowa Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Carrie, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And uh, Carrie, we've been talking about preparing kids for safe and healthy relationships and some basic sexual education. Of course, through your work with the Iowa Coalition Against Sexual Assault, you're often dealing with uh, people who have experienced sexual harassment or specifically sexual assault. And I'm curious about the kinds of conversations that teenagers who are in situations like that need to be having from your perspective? Um, As Allison said, uh, when it comes to talking with kids about sexual assault and bodily consent and their own sexuality, we need to start those conversations early. Unfortunately, though, so many people that are growing up in our society don't have access to good information early on, which then if they unfortunately are experiencing sexual violence in their lives, increases the shame and guilt because there's not a lot of conversation about what do you do, how do you reach out for help, and what um, our society does a lot of times is push that guilt and shame back onto the victim of the crime rather than onto the person committing the act. So much of the Me Too movement has been people disclosing stories of things that happened to them when they were teenagers, things that happened and they did not feel like they had recourse. They didn't disclose to anybody. They didn't have a place to turn to for help. Have you felt like this is opening up the conversation, maybe giving some people more of an opportunity to reach out? Yeah. One of the things that we've seen with um, the Me Too movement and how social media conversations are happening around sexual violence is that more survivors are feeling like there is a place for them to voice um, their experiences and feel supported. Um, Because that's the thing about social media, right? We decide who we connect with and how we uh, consume that information. And so for survivors that I've worked with and on my own personal personal social media, I see um, folks that are disclosing and are reaching out for help and are sharing information or talking with how they talk to their kids and to their friends and families about sexual violence 
really getting um, some feedback that's helpful for them, that feels supportive for them. And so when we see things on the news that are positive or in our social media feeds that are supportive of survivors, that give survivors a place to come and talk about that and really reach out for help and support. But on the flip side, as we've seen in the negative news cycle that happened for the last several weeks um, around not necessarily the Me Too movement, but some other very public conversations about sexual violence, um, when that conversation shifts and victim blame happens in a larger context, that helps silence people and can um, make survivors feel really overwhelmed and triggered and like, uh, anything that they've done to that point um, isn't isn't effective in the people around them. So I, I think it is um, helpful to have these conversations to talk about Me Too, um, to talk about the realities of sexual violence. Um, but until we really normalize having conversations about sexuality, both positive and negative, in a really holistic way, it's going to be hard for people that have had these experiences to really feel um, like the community is listening. With me, Allison Oliver. She teaches human sexuality courses at the University of Iowa. She's also facilitated programming for children from kindergarten through middle school with the Our Whole Lives program, which is a value-based secular curriculum. And also with me, Carrie Trufunk, Director of Operations and Special Projects with the Iowa Coalition Against Sexual Assault. And I want to bring somebody else into the conversation now. Marianne McLeod is the Director of Community Services for Bethany for Children and Families. It's a social services nonprofit serving the Quad city areas, and her work largely focuses on teen pregnancy prevention. She helps to provide an evidence-based curriculum in all intermediate schools in Davenport, as well as schools in North Scott and Bettendorf. Marianne, thank you for being here. Well, you're welcome. Good morning. And I understand that the curriculum that you work with in middle schools is probably a curriculum that a lot of us would be a little more familiar with based on on experiences that we had growing up and going through sex ed when when they were in school. And I'm curious, have you heard about or experienced the ideas that, that the Me Too movement have brought to the fore? Have you experienced kids bringing that up in middle schools? Oh. Sure. Um, um, one of the programs that we do, um, I have a co-facilitator, Patty Sorensen. We work together. We have 30 different uh, groups from intermediate up through high school. But last week we were talking about values in our boys' groups. We have like eight boys' groups. And um, they were talking about respecting women, and we asked them if they knew what the Me Too movement was, and they said yes, they did. And they felt that it was very important that you did respect women and so they were aware. We didn't know how aware they would be. And awareness is one thing, knowing the name Me Too as you got into the conversation. Did they seem to understand it? Oh, yes, they did. One boy shared a story that um, his mother was an advocate for women's rights and gay rights and uh, that they went to a um, parade and uh, then there were some negative comments made, and Mom was a little reticent and wanted to go home, and he was very disturbed by that because he said, if you believe in something, you need to stand up for that. Megan is on the line in Ames. Hi, Megan. Hi there. Hi. What would you like to talk about? I just had a comment to share. I think it's so important, um, you know, teaching young people to have a healthy concept of sexuality and to, to teach them how to have that dialogue with themselves before they even really need it with anybody else. 
Um, and I just see it as such a basic kind of health initiative where we, we know how to take care of our cardiovascular system. We know, you know, how to eat well. Um, but I just see it as another one of those core um, elements of being a healthy human being, you know, spiritually, physically, mental health, um, sexually. I think I think that's a major one as well, and I'm so happy to hear that there are programs and initiatives out there to teach our young people um, how to have those conversations. Well, Megan, thank you so much for your comments. And we were talking earlier about how as a, a culture, we have evolved. More parents feel comfortable talking to their kids about this, but there are still parents who don't feel comfortable talking to their kids about sex. And and I've asked already, uh, I've asked Allison to give me her perspective on how things have evolved. And Marianne, you've been involved in this work for a long time. I'm curious, do you feel like families are having these conversations more now than, than when you started with this kind of education, uh, what, 25, 30 years ago? 33 years ago. 33 years ago. All right. So how do you, how do you see the evolution of these conversations? Uh, I would say it's, it's getting better, um, but they're almost forced to, given uh, social media and all the things that we see um, on TV and all the things that have come to the forefront. But there are still parents that are reticent and don't want to talk about it and definitely don't want to call the body parts what they are. Um, what we see in both the, the younger students and the high school students is they really don't know how their body works, even if they're juniors and seniors. Um, you know, even know if they've they gone through this, these programs in junior high. Right. They need it about seven times. That's what they do. They need it about seven times. Because sometimes they're astounded when we'll say something and they'll say, well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And they might be 16 or 17. And of course, for the Younger ones, the twelve-year-olds. Uh, there's a lot of giggling, and they didn't know that their body functioned like that. Interesting. And uh, we do have a program for parents. It's called Know What to Say, and it's to teach them um, how to talk to their kids about sex and how to get over that initial embarrassment, and um, you know how to answer difficult questions and how you can do it together. And we talk about what types of things to include in it. The one thing I can say, I mean, we've always talked about consent, but in the last five years, we've really beefed that up because there's been so much and so many people not knowing what consent really was. Right. So what do you teach your students about consent? Well, we, we talk about definitely we'll go over what the state law is. First, we have to ask them if they know what consent is, and, and oftentimes they don't. And so then we will talk about that and what the state law is, and then we will give them different scenarios, and and we will ask them, do you feel consent was present? Do you feel it was rape? Um, and that promotes truly interesting dialogue. We can give the same scenarios at 15 different schools, and they will come up with different answers and different reasons why they didn't think it was rape. The three scenarios that we use are all uh, situations that it was rape. Interesting. And with those conversations, with conversations about consent, of course, uh, there has long been an emphasis on putting off sexual intercourse in these programs that are taught in especially in junior highs and and telling students that, you know, they're educating them about contraceptives. That's a part of these this uh, evidence based programming, but also encouraging them to say no. How do you feel that complicates this conversation about consent and the understanding of sexual assault? 
Well, I think you you have to uh, do better than just telling them to say no. And that's, we have a program called Making Proud Choices, and we use it uh, for 8th graders, 7th graders primarily. And it's abstinence, but it's also, we will talk about contraceptives, but the key to that program is that there are lessons in there that talk about refusal and negotiation skills. And I can say that every year at the end of programming, that's one of the things when the evaluations come back, kids say thank you for teaching me that. I feel better about being able to say no. I didn't know how to do that. And sometimes as parents, we're very guilty about saying you need to say no to sex, but we never teach them how. Interesting. And Allison, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. I know consent is a, a large part of the conversation that you have with middle schoolers in, in your education. You have that conversation a lot with your college students yes. as well. Um, how does that interact with our understanding of sexual harassment and sexual assault? Sure. And I think, um, and I appreciate Marianne's comment that I think we've done a better job in the evidence-based curriculum about uh, building communication skills as it relates to refusal tactics and, and some things related to uh, negotiation. Um, since a lot of the evidence-based programs are risk reduction for pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections, all of them are going to include, like, it's better to not engage um, in, in sexual behavior, which is why there's, there's more priority to, that tends to be uh, centered on the refusal tactics. And I think what is as important um, as well as not just about saying and hearing the different types of no, but also in teaching people how to say yes. Um, and that in a lot of the, the conversations, like with my college students as they reflect on their, their lives growing up, it's that um, they have a hard time being able to articulate their own desires, their own sense of pleasure, their own sense of sexual autonomy and agency and possibility. And so I, I wish we would start earlier in acknowledging the experience and validating the experience of pleasure um, and that that can happen independent of another in so many different ways. Um, and then when we have shared pleasure with other people, that we can be creative and flexible and not just have one goal in mind, one step-by-step -step process that's this is what real sex or good sex or whatever is going to be, that we can teach them to be much more flexible and creative in negotiating different kinds of, of uh, experiences with people that... Um, that can be reducing their risk of, of negative consequences and possibly more within their comfort zone as they're building romantic and sexual relationship skills. Carrie, I, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. In working with survivors of sexual assault, we know that often there is shame that, that goes along with that experience and the aftermath of that experience. We know that in a culture where often victims are blamed, uh, victims often blame themselves as well. So when we're talking to young people about consent and when we're talking to them about sexual harassment and sexual assault, how do you think we need to have that conversation so that maybe the, the shame that so many of these victims experience is not as prevalent? And there's a lot of emphasis put on to whether or not something was sexual assault culturally by the presence of a no, when in reality, consent is so much about the presence of a yes, a presence of a, I want to participate in this sexual activity with you. 
changing the concept away from refusal of sex to really participating in sex with people that want to be there, that enthusiastic consent model, that affirmative consent model, um, can shift a lot in our idea of what sexual assault is and what consent to sexual activity is. And so a lot of healing is done with survivors around their own healthy sexuality, around whether or not they want to be sexually active and when they want to be sexually active active, um, figuring out if it's uh, them wanting to reconnect with their bodies in a very um, personal sort of way, or if they want to learn how to connect with a partner and have a positive sexual experience with another human being. And so consent really um, isn't the um, absence of a no, it's a yes, I want to do this, this is where my boundary is, this is what I think sounds good or healthy or pleasurable. And so I agree with Allison that um, when it comes to talking with our our children and young adults about consent, it really has to start young with um, bodily autonomy, decision-making, and that it's okay um, and it's healthy and it's good to want to have that positive interaction sexually with other people. Carrie Trufunk, Director of Operations and Special Projects with the Iowa Coalition Against Sexual Assault. I've also been talking with Allison Oliver. She teaches human sexuality courses at the University of Iowa and has facilitated programming for children from kindergarten through middle school with the Our Whole Lives program. It's a value-based curriculum affiliated with the Unitarian Universalist Association. It is not taught in Iowa schools. And Marianne McLeod, Director of Community Services for Bethany for Children and Families, a social services nonprofit serving the Quad Cities area. Her work focuses on teen pregnancy prevention and she helps to provide an evidence based curriculum for intermediate schools. You've been listening to Unsettled Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe.